It's good to sing. You know, in some states right now, they're prohibited from singing in church. I know many churches are doing it, but I'm thankful that we can sing. I'm thankful that we're commanded to sing in Scripture because it's good for us. It's, it builds us up. And we'll come to that passage later in Ephesians. But for today, open to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4. And we are looking at now the last paragraph of chapter 4 in our exposition and our series on Ephesians. And Paul is, is teaching us here, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a messenger with the words of Christ, is teaching us how to live as Christians. That's what Scripture teaches. It teaches how to be saved and how to be sanctified. And it's where we go when we want to find out that information. We don't, we don't go to the world. We go to Scripture. And if you want to know how to live as a Christian, you, you come to a book like Ephesians, and you learn what to believe in the first part, and you learn how to live that out in the second part of Ephesians. So let me just read to you verses 25 through 32. The title of the sermon is Foundational Principles of the Christian Life. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should live different from the world. Believers should look different. They should sound different. They should act different. A person should be able to look at your life if they're an unbeliever and notice there is something different. And we saw Paul talk about this in the previous paragraph when he started off saying, don't live like the Gentiles. Don't live like the world. The gospel teaches us the way of salvation. It teaches us how to come to Christ, how God saves us by his grace alone, through faith alone. But it's not over when we're saved. It's not over when we're justified. We have a lifetime of sanctification. God has given us grace for that as well. Not just grace in His justifying us, but grace in His sanctifying us. And all that grace is, is powerful enough to continue to make us more and more like Christ. And now Paul's teaching us here how to do that. We have God's power He's already taught us. And, he, and He's already taught us that we have God's grace. And we have God's Word. We know that. So what else do we need? Well, we need to do what it says, don't we? I need to be not just hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. Doers of the word. Now, you recall he's just taught us how to do that. Don't live like the pagans. Don't live like unbelievers. And he detailed all the way down to the heart issues in verses 17 through 19. And he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. That's not the way we were taught Christianity. That's not the way we were taught to learn 
and live like Christ? And he goes on to say how to get rid of that old self that keeps trying to have its rule with us. Those temptations, that indwelling sin that wants to take over and tempt you and lead you into sinful ways. And he says, put off that old self. Put it off. Take it off like an old garment. Throw it away. Don't go after it and try to put it back on. Let your mind be renewed by the Holy Spirit's the idea. Of course, you do that through Scripture. We've been learning on Sunday mornings at 9 in Frank's class on how to do that, how to read Scripture, meditate on it, memorize it, and then put on the new self in Christ. Put on the new self. Put on the new garment. You can do that, Paul says. He's commanded it in verse 24. Put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Righteousness being doing what's right between you and another person, doing what lines up with God's expectations, and holiness being like God, being set apart, being holy. Well, now Paul's going to explain how we apply that. He's going to give us specific application. This isn't one of those uh, places where you just walk away and wonder, wow, Paul, how do I apply such a thing? Now he's going to give you five ways to apply it here. Five foundational principles in this paragraph to guide us in the Christian life. I thought about trying to do all five in one sermon. I even consulted with the intern, Frank. And he said, that's really rich text. He knows from biblical counseling that this is a text you go to often. And he advised me to do it in two, and I agreed with him. So we're going to look at the first three this week. And then the last two next week. Five foundational principles to guide us in the Christian life. And from the moment we're saved until we go to be with Christ, these principles should serve as as a guide, as, as guidelines for putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ. And these aren't suggestions. They're commands. There's actually 13 imperatives. If you look at the, the tenses of these Greek verbs in this paragraph, there's 13 Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians, he was teaching doctrine, and he wasn't giving imperatives there. There was only one imperative for three whole chapters. He was teaching on the way things are. Those are called indicatives in grammar. But an imperative is a command. And there's 13 of them listed here, but they're grouped around five main principles. First of all, the very first one he touches on, be truthful with your speech. Christians have to be truthful. When they speak, when they say things, they must speak with truth. There's no place in the Christian life for falsehood, for lying. And he starts off just saying, therefore. That that tells you it connects back to something. Based on what I've just said, Paul says. Based on the putting off and putting on doctrine. Let me give you some specific application. And he says, laying aside falsehood. He starts off with the negative, the thing you're to put off. Falsehood. It's the Greek word pseudos. You've probably heard of pseudo in English. Pseudoscience, fake science. Pseudo-medicine, fake medicine. Pseudos is the opposite of truth. It's the opposite of truth. It's lies. Jesus said no lie is of the truth. It's contradictory. A lie can't be true. When you speak falsehood, you are lying. And he's saying, put all that aside. In fact, you'll notice he's already said, laying aside all falsehood, you've already done it as a Christian. 
What kinds of lying are we talking about? Well, obviously, there's general kind of lying. Anytime you, you knowingly say something, that's not true. But as Christians, we often find other ways to lie. And Paul says, put that aside. All kinds of lying. Shading the truth. Exaggerating. Just making yourself sound better. Or, or maybe in this situation, you exaggerated it to make it sound like you were better than the other people. Or you said and did something so much grander than what really happened. Exaggeration is a big problem in the Christian life. Lying and cheating. Cheating on your schoolwork. Cheating your customers in business. Maybe you work for a company. Stealing your company's time is a form of lying. Because you're saying that I work this time, but you really didn't. You're on social media or whatever. Cheating on your taxes. Cheating on your taxes. Not, not a mistake, but knowingly reporting the wrong numbers or hiding money so that you don't have to pay taxes. And Jesus was clear, we're supposed to pay taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Lying to God. Christians sometimes lie to God. Promising God certain things, I'll do certain things. God, I promise, but you know you're not going to do those things. You know that you're not going to even fulfill that promise. Telling someone that you'll keep their secret when you go and then tell others. That's a lie. Gossip, slander, those are lies, especially slander. That, that's speaking evil about somebody that's not true. But gossip is, is most often lies too, because you're saying something to other people that you don't even know if it's true or not. You just heard it, so you're passing it along. Usually it makes the person sound bad, and you're passing it along supposedly secretly to others. Flattering others so that they'll like you more, or they'll give you what you want. Just saying nice things to them that aren't really true so you can get what you want from them. Or that they will like you more than they normally would. Sometimes in a relationship, it is just incongruencies. Where your speech is, is inconsistent with your body language. You've all seen it. Where you're talking to someone and what's coming out of their mouth doesn't match their body language. And you know something is going on there. Classic is asking somebody, what's wrong? And you know something's wrong with them. That's why you ask them. What's wrong? Nothing. No, you can tell me what's going on. Nothing. It's nothing. Do you like this? Do you like this thing? Sometimes this is uh, in marriage, right? Do you like this? It's okay. It's fine. Is it really fine? That's a type of falsehood. Disguised communication, innuendos, insinuations, implied accusations. All of that, we've got to set it aside. We need to speak truth. That doesn't mean you come out and always, you know, tell somebody that their clothes don't look good when, you, when your wife asks you or, or somebody in church comes up and asks you a question. You have to be careful sometimes. You don't hide the truth, but you don't always dump all the truth on that moment. You have to be careful. You have to know how much this person can take. You have to be in a relationship with them, knowing them well enough. But his point here is don't lie. Don't lie. Those who make it a habit of lying, those who make it a general pattern of, of lying in their life, the Bible says will go to hell. They're not going to enter heaven. In Revelation 21, 28, very end of the Bible, speaking of the new Jerusalem, the eternal city, it says, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. A person who lies on a regular basis, who's part of their life, that's just who they are. That's not a believer. You know, Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. 
What do lies come from? They come from Satan. He's the father of lies. He births all these lies that we sometimes tell. And those who lie follow Satan with their actions instead of God. If we lie, we're just following what Satan wants us to do. He often tempts us to lie. And lying is a serious sin. It's, it's not something to be brushed off by a Christian and just accepted. Because the world lies, of course we have to lie. If the world does it, we have to do it to get by, don't we? Well, notice Paul says again in the past tense, having already put aside falsehood. It should already be done. And a believer must not go on lying to others. Instead of that, instead of lying, he says, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Put off the lying and put on the truth. The truth is in accordance with God. Put, put away falsehood. Don't, don't figure out ways to make up stories and cover your sin. Just speak truth. Speak truth. He's quoting Zechariah 8.16 here. The prophet Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament. And Zechariah speaking of the future. And here Zechariah 8. God has saved a remnant of Israel. He saved a remnant of Israel, and the first command he gives them is to speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. And now Paul's taking that, and he's applying it to the new creation in Christ. God has saved a remnant in this age, and he's put that remnant into the church. That is the church. Christians, saved by the grace of God, are Christ's body. They are the church. And Paul's applied it here, and he said, speak truth. The neighbor here is your church body. That's the context of the whole Ephesian letter. That's what he's been saying. Be united. Speak truth to one another. Be unified. How can we be unified as a church if we're not speaking truth? A church that lies to one another is going to divide. A church that lies to one another is going to separate. It's going to have major issues, major problems. Be unified. Speak truth to one another. And, and notice the main verb here. Speak. It is the main verb of this verse, verse 25. Speak. Speaking here involves a continuous action. It's in the present tense. And it doesn't mean you're to talk all the time. But it means as a Christian is speaking, it should always be truthful. It shouldn't be mixed. It should always be truthful. This should be a regular habit. It should be just what you do naturally. The hard part is, is trying not to lie. It shouldn't be Trying to speak truth. That shouldn't be hard for the Christian. Especially if you've been a Christian a very long time. If this command is true, of course, for the whole church to speak truth, how much more in your personal relationships with other believers? How much more important to speak truth to your spouse? To speak truth to your children or your parents? To speak truth to your friends? To speak truth to your fellow brother and sister in Christ? Be honest with one another. It's basic, so basic that the world teaches that, or used to, to their kids. Just be honest. Just tell the truth. There's no clamming up. People can't read your mind. You need to speak. Instead of lying, just say what is truthful. But don't stonewall people. If you want to grow, communicate. Communicate with other believers. When someone at church asks how you're doing, and you're not doing fine, don't just walk away and say, I'm doing fine. They could be praying for you. If you would just be honest with them, you don't have to dump your whole life on them, but if, if they notice something's wrong and they ask you, that's an opportunity. 
And maybe if you told them, they would pray for you this week. And you know the power of prayer, don't you? Maybe if you told them that they would point out a passage of Scripture that's really helped them. Maybe they would point out a book that you could go through if it's an ongoing problem in your life. The point is, speak truth. Don't make people guess. Tell them truthfully when they ask. And when Paul says, speak truth, he he does not mean that we ought to use the truth to, to harshly berate people. You don't go around using the truth to harm people. He's already talked about that back in verse 15 of this chapter. Speaking the truth in love. It's got to be done in love. You don't use the truth to somehow bring others down, to be brutal to them, to crush them in an argument. I know the truth, so I'm going to win this argument. That's not building up. That's not helpful. He doesn't say, instead of lying, use the truth to beat over people's head. No, you're to speak the truth with the other person's best interest in mind. The truth builds up. Jesus said the word of God is truth. Sanctify them, he prays to the Father. Sanctify them in truth. It's to build up. It's to make holy. It's to be godly. You're not to go around to other Christians and suddenly you've learned more theology than them. And instead of being patient and kind and helping them see the truth, you start whacking them upside the head with the doctrines that you've learned. Some of you know we've talked about that before, the cage stage when it comes to Reformed theology. But it could be other things. It could be about tongues and prophecy. Maybe you've seen something they haven't seen. Well, that's where teaching comes in. That's where counseling comes in, even here within the church. You will come across people in small groups that say things that you know are a little off. Sometimes they're a lot off. Maybe in a book study, maybe in a small Bible study. And you think that's not really in line with what our church believes. And you have to make a decision. Is this the time to pounce on them when others are around? Or is this a situation that we could wait till afterwards? Or maybe it's so small you just let it go. It will depend on the seriousness. It will depend on the situation. But you're speaking truth. Maybe right there in front of the group if it's a heretical type of sin. But maybe afterwards you're bringing a verse. You're helping them. You're speaking truth to them. Why is this so important to speak truth? We are members of one another. Why? Before we're members of one another. We all serve the same Lord. We're all part of the same body. We're all part of Christ's body. He's the head. He speaks truth to us. You wouldn't want Christ speaking falsehood to you. That would mislead you. You would would go down the wrong path. And he would never do that. He's not capable of doing that. But let's be like him. Why would we speak falsely to our own body? Does your hand speak falsely to your head? Does your head speak falsely to your feet? What happens if you're walking down the road and your head's not communicating with the feet? Trip and fall and hurt yourself. No more lying. That destroys friendships within the body of Christ. Destroying a friendship is easy when you lie all the time. And Paul says don't do it. Lying destroys marriages. Lying destroys parental relationships. Gossip and slander and division occur in the church from lying. The church can split. That ancient preacher Chrysostom, the golden mouth, the golden tongue, says it like this. If the eye sees a serpent, does it lie to the foot? If the nose smells a deadly drug, will it lie to the mouth? Or if the tongue tastes something bitter, will it lie to the stomach? It's ridiculous for one part of the body, isn't it, to lie to the other. So let's speak truth to one another. Let's build one another up in the truth. Let's put off lying and put on the truth of Christ. That's number one. Number two, be righteous with your anger. 
This is an important one. We have to understand, be righteous with your anger. That's 26 and 27. Paul gives the main principle and some qualifications. First of all, he says, be angry and do not sin. Now he's quoting from Psalm 4.4. You know how much Paul uses the Old Testament here? Paul's writing scripture. He's inspired by the Spirit to write the words that Christ has given him to write. And yet he still quotes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament's valuable. It's important. And he's making these connections for us. He's quoted from Zechariah 8, now Psalm 4.4. But look at this command. Be angry. He's commanding. That's an imperative. Be angry. That's hard for us to believe that Paul would be saying, be angry. It's so hard that a lot of commentators look at this and they write in their commentary that he's actually saying something else. They try to get around the fact that he's commanding clearly to be angry. He's saying, Christians, be angry. And then he goes on to start qualifying it. But let's just talk about anger. There's two types of anger. It's very clear in Scripture. You probably have seen it many times. There's sinful, evil, unrighteous anger. This is the anger of man. This is the anger of the devil. Look down in verse 31. We'll come to this next week. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away, he says. There's the word anger again. There you put it away. And here in verse 26, he says, be angry. He's commanding it. Well, there's a difference. The one down in verse 31 is an evil, unrighteous anger. It's not godly. It's not righteous. It's from our sinful desires. It's for a sinful purpose when we get angry for ourselves. James chapter 1 verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If it's all about us and we get angry, we're not seeking God's righteousness. We're not even trying. But the anger that Paul's talking about here, the Greek word orge here, it can be used for sinful anger and it can be used for a righteous, holy anger, depending on the context. The context here, if he's commanding it, he wouldn't command us to sin. So he's saying, be righteously angry. Have a godly anger about some things. Anger is not intrinsically evil. Do you know how many times God is said to be angry? Didn't we just sing a song about God's anger? That Christ was crushed beneath God's rage? Beneath God's wrath? Let's go to Mark chapter 3 verse 5. You might be thinking there's one place in the life of Christ where he was angry. There might have been more than one. But here we have the word used. We have the idea given. Mark 3. Let's start in verse 4. So he's in the synagogue. He's talking with the people in the synagogue who are upset with him. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to give a life or to kill? But they kept silent. They couldn't even give a clear answer that it's right to save a life, that it's good to save a life. They were thinking sinfully. They were thinking about themselves. And verse 5, After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. But the Pharisees were unjust. They would rather see somebody die and suffer on the Sabbath than Christ heal them. And he got angry over that. He got angry over that injustice. 
You might remember when he overturned the money changers table. He got a whip and whipped them until they ran out of the temple. He was angry, but in a righteous way. In the Old Testament, we read of God's anger over and over at Israel. And God is perfect. God cannot sin. It's a righteous, holy anger. Righteous anger hates all injustice. It hates immorality. It hates ungodliness. It hates every other sin. And if you aren't angry at sin, then you have to ask yourself, I'm not a Christian. I know the world thinks being a Christian is all about just being nice. But sometimes you get angry at sin. But sometimes you get angry at your own sin. You should do that. You should get angry when the world is loving sin. When our country who thinks they're Christians are loving sin. When injustice is being done. When God is dishonored by others. It should bother you if somebody is in your presence and they're speaking sinfully about God. That should bother you. That should make you angry inside. Now we think of anger as just outbursts. But Paul's just saying right here the the emotion of anger. What's going on in your heart, that should not sit well with you when you see sin or hear sin. John Stott, the commentator on Ephesians here, says that there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. More Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. We should be angry at false teachers who are trying to get our family members and our friends to follow the prosperity gospel or the social gospel or whatever false gospel that's trying to grab the people we love and take them away from the truth. That should anger you. But the Bible sets limits on that anger. The Bible sets limits on that anger. Even if it's right to be angry, you have to remember you're not God. You're not going to be 100% pure and all your actions that flow out of righteous anger. So you have to be careful. You can't let it get away. You can't let it be twisted. You can't let it be corrupted by your indwelling sin that's still there. We're still tainted. We're still tainted with indwelling sin as a believer. And it's difficult for us to practice a godly type of anger. If it's hard enough for us just to grow in godliness when we're calm, how much is it going to be when we get angry, even if it's for a righteous reason? So it gives three limitations. There's three things we need to do to make sure our anger doesn't get out of control. First of all, do not sin. Be angry, and right away he says, and do not sin. Be angry, and do not sin. You can get angry for the right reasons and then turn it into sin right away. By what you say, by what you do, by the attitude. God's always in control when he has his anger. He's always in control. God doesn't mix sin with anger. He has no sin to mix in. But we certainly do. We have a tendency to let righteous anger boil over into sinful actions. We do. If believers are are being led by the Holy Spirit, then they'll be angry at the right time and place. And they're not going to wrong others because of that anger. Anger can be used to do good. If it's righteous, it can be used to inspire you. It can be used to motivate you to do something. I'm sick of my own sin. I'm going to use that anger 
to do something about it. I'm tired of my children continuing in this sinful pattern. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to start counseling them. I'm going to start praying with them. Whatever it is. Anger can motivate, but it can also lead to sin. And he says, don't do it. Go back to Ephesians 4, verse 2. How should we handle it whenever someone does something that is sinful and, and it angers us in the church with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love? Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We can't let it make us sin. We're in control, not anger. Our emotions don't control us. The world says your emotions control you. Do what you want. Do whatever feels good. Do whatever you think is right. Whatever you feel is right. Listen to your heart. I think there was a song in the 90s about that. And every Disney movie basically teaches, listen to your heart. And Paul says, be angry, do not sin. Don't listen to your heart. You know what sin is. Don't do it. We're exhorted to be gentle and patient even when we're righteously angry. Martin Luther, probably most famous person in church history that struggled with anger, and he often had outbursts of anger all the time. And he said, jokingly, he said, all my life is patience. I have to be patient with the Pope, the heretics, and my wife, Katie. He was always struggling and fighting this temptation to turn righteous anger into sin. Second qualification, the rest of verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, be angry. Be angry over sin, but don't let it fester. Don't let it continue. Don't let it build and build and build. Now, the word for anger in this verse, the rest of uh, the end of verse 26 here, is slightly different than the word at the beginning of the verse. It has more to do with the source or cause of your anger. Some translations might even say, don't let the sun go down on the source of your anger. That would be a better translation. Paul's saying, deal with the source. Deal with the cause of your anger. Don't just sit around and let it fester in your heart. Do something about it. Do something good and godly about it. Deal with it in the right way. What is the problem? Why are you upset? Did your, did your spouse sin against you? Then go to them, tell them, and deal with it according to Scripture. Why are you upset? Is it something you can even do anything about? Something the government did? The president? The governor? The mayor? How do you deal with that? Well, you, you give it up to God. You say, God, I can't do anything about this. I'm angry that such injustice is happening in this incident. The Supreme Court would allow more babies to be killed every day. And Lord, I trust that you will handle that. That you will do what is right. And you don't let that fester. To the point where you hate all government and you're ready to join the militia that's going to take over, cause anarchy. Don't let your anger fester. On the battlefield, if you let a wound fester, you can lose your arm, you can lose your leg to gangrene. If anger festers in your relationship, in your marriage, in your friendships, in the church, it's going to kill off that relationship. It's going to cause severe damage. So don't let it get to that point. Deal with it. Instead of letting it fester, Seek to resolve it before the sun goes down, he says. Or just before you go to sleep. That's the best course of action. Sometimes you can't always. You won't, you won't see that person for a bit. But let it be settled before you go to sleep that night. Let it be settled. At least settled in your mind what you're going to do as soon as you see that person again. Or if it's nothing you can change in the world, then give it to God before the day is over. If it's your spouse, deal with it in the house before it causes problems. 
Confess your sins. Ask for forgiveness. Seek forgiveness. Seek reconciliation. Pray. We pray every night before we go to sleep in my house and as a family and as husband and wife. And it's really hard to continue to be angry with somebody that you're praying with. Somebody that's praying for you and you're praying for them. It's hard to be angry at them. You need to reconcile those things before you go to sleep. Number three, third qualification. It's all of verse 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. You start out doing a godly thing by being righteously angry. And then you let it fester and you let it continue. And you've just given the devil a place to come into your life. An opportunity. Literally a a physical place. Don't give the devil a place. In your heart. In your life is the idea. If you remain angry long enough, Satan will take advantage of that. He will. He'll twist your thinking. He'll, He'll... Get you to start saying, well, you know, it would be right if I did this thing in this situation because they're doing wrong. So if I do a little wrong, it's okay. If I say these things, it's okay. Because after all, they sinned against me first. It's wrong what someone's doing. So I'll go ahead and and sin a bit. Just a little white lie. Just a small thing. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He's, He's prowling around you like a roaring lion. He's waiting For you to show signs of being angry, even if it's righteous anger. And he will tempt you. He will tempt you to sin. He's the father of lies. He's a liar from the beginning. And he likes to twist and distort the truth. And you think you're doing the right thing, but you've really just given him a place by festering and festering and festering with your anger. Even if it's righteous. We have to be careful. We have to limit it just as the apostle has taught us. So yes, be angry. But do not sin. Deal with it that day. Deal with the cause of it. And don't give the devil a place, an opportunity. Thirdly, be honest with your work. Number three, be honest. These are principles that we've already covered here. Be truthful with your speech. Be righteous with your anger. Be honest with your work. These are principles that a Christian should live by. It should be something you can do. That It's not always easy to do, but you're working on it. It's part of your life. It comes out of your heart because you're a Christian. Number three is be honest with your work. We ought to work hard with our hands and put away any type of theft, any type of stealing. He who steals, Paul says, steal no longer. Now he's addressing a basic moral issue. Every unbeliever steals in some way. They just do. Maybe there are different kinds of stealing, different levels. Some will end you up in jail, others won't. Jesus says that Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy in John chapter 10. Have you noticed how much the devil shows up in some of these things? He's a liar from the beginning. He loves to twist your anger, and he loves to make you want to steal. Theft is of the devil. It's part of the old man. It's part of the sin nature. You don't have to teach one of your kids to pick up something that they want from somebody else's house. Go to people's house, come home, kids start emptying their pockets. They got somebody else's Legos. Somebody else's more expensive Lego guys or toys. Where'd you get that? I just picked it up. I liked it. Sometimes I'll do that in the store if you don't watch them. Little kid, put something in their pocket. You don't have to teach them to do that. They just get what they want. And we do that sometimes as Christians. We just take what we want. We rationalize it. We justify it. 
And he who steals must steal no longer. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. Exodus 20, given to Israel. It's just a basic. It's one of the ten pillars of the law. And in the first century, when Paul writes, whether you are a slave or a farmhand or a laborer or a merchant or a shopkeeper, stealing was just a way of life. You just picked up things along the way. If you're working for a merchant, he's not going to miss this. I'll take it. If you're a slave, you could take a little on the side and maybe sell it to the other slaves or, or sell it outside of the household. This happened regularly. And the temptation was always there. And it is in our world too. Temptation is there to take what you want. But there are more subtle ways of stealing. Not just taking anything that doesn't belong to you, but not paying your debt is a form of stealing. You owe a debt. You can pay it, but you choose not to. Or maybe you can't pay it because you spend it on your desires and your pleasures. Or you put it somewhere else. Cheating on your taxes comes up again. It's a type of lying, and it's a type of stealing. You're stealing from the government. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That means Caesar owns those things. He owns the taxes, whether we like it or not. We might do things to legally lower our taxes. That's fine. But you're stealing from the government whenever you lie on your taxes. Not paying fair wages to those who work for you. Not paying a livable wage. And yet they could get that livable wage somewhere else if they went and worked a job. That's a type of stealing. But the Bible is very clear that the person who makes it a practice to steal, again, they're in those lists that say he or she will not get into heaven. It doesn't matter if they say they're a Christian. The general life of stealing, stealing other people's money, stealing other people's possessions, says you're not a believer. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, who are, who are the unrighteous? He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Stealing a thing here or there is no big deal, right? Well, it's in the list. It's in the list with fornicators, homosexuals, adulterers, and idolaters. In fact, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Paul has a lot to say about people who don't work, but want to take other people's things or let the church donate their things to them because they're lazy. 2 Thessalonians Chapter 3, verse 10. We've got some people in the Thessalonian church who are just sitting around waiting for the Lord to come back. There's no use to go to work. Jesus is coming back. Y'all take care of me. Well, he has some strong words for them here. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Going around from house to house, just having a good time. Probably picking up a few things to live off of while they're there. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat with their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Instead of being lazy, taking from other people, get out and do something good. Work. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Such a person who who makes it their ongoing lifestyle ought to be put out of the church. Church discipline. They're taking from others. Maybe they're lying to get from others. Maybe they're physically taking, 
money and things. But instead of stealing, he says, rather, this person must labor. And you notice he says, no longer. No longer steal. The idea is when people come to Christ, they were thieves. Many of them in the church. And he says, don't do that anymore. Instead, labor. Instead of stealing, the believer must repent. They must stop what they're doing and put on something that is good, something that is right. Work. Work. Dave Ramsey says it's a sure-fired, money-making scheme to go and work. Stealing's easy. You just go take what you want. As long as no one's looking, you just grab it. Hope you get away with it. Work is hard. In fact, the word here for labor is not just average work. It means labor to the point of weariness, to the point of exhaustion. It's used in 1 Timothy 5 to speak of teachers and preachers who labor over the word. The believer in Christ must work as hard as they can for the Lord. Not sitting back on Facebook while they're getting paid. Not surfing around on Instagram and Twitter. They're working hard for the Lord. It's for the Lord that they work. That's going to come up later in chapter 5 and 6. But they're working for the Lord. The believer in Christ must work as hard as they can. And they have no time left for stealing. There's no time to sit around and take other people's things. You're focused on working for the Lord. And he says, performing with his own hands what is good. He describes how this works. Do something with your hands that is good. Now today we also have jobs with the mind as well. He's just saying, get to work. Stop stealing, get to work. Work hard. We'll work with your own hands. Provide for yourself, provide for your family. Don't rely upon the church. That's, that's his point in 2 Thessalonians. If you don't need to get help from the church, if you're able to work, you ought to work. Sometimes people stop by and they want to get money from our church. and They have to go through with the deacons a special list of questions. Their scenario has to be real. It's not just they're hopping around from church to church, and we get a lot of those. They're just trying to take money from each church. They could work. They choose not to, so they can have free money. So that, what's the purpose? So that he will have something to share with one who has need. You need to supply your own needs. You need to supply your family's needs. But the ultimate purpose for working hard is not so you can have all this nice, fun, awesome stuff. The ultimate purpose is says to provide for others who have a need. To share something. To share something. He's not saying how much you have to share. He's just saying that you'll have something to share because you've been focused. You've been working. You once took from people and now you're working hard to give to people in your church context. Here at our church, we have many examples of this. We have a deacon's fund that you can give to regularly and that helps church members who are struggling. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they have a medical bill they can't pay. Maybe they need something in their house that's vital to be fixed up. They don't have the money for it. We have a Timothy fund for men being trained for ministry so that men don't have to go work 40, 50 hours a week and on top of the seminary training, stay up all night studying. We also want to share with missionaries, those who go out to plant churches, those who go out to train pastors in other nations. We're going to have one of those missionaries come and speak to us in August. We need to support such things. If we have enough money, and we should if we're working hard, we can support the work of the church. We can support the work of the Lord. Well, these are the first three principles. We'll look at the other two next week. We should be truthful in our speech. We should be righteous with our anger. And we should be honest 
with our word. Now, if you're a believer and you find yourself caught up in any of these actions on a regular basis, or even if you do them occasionally or here and there, you need to repent. You need to confess. Confess your sins to the Lord. Maybe you have to talk to your boss or your customer. Confess your sins. And God will forgive. If you're one of His, it says that He will forgive, that He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then turn and pursue Christ. Put on the things that Paul says here. If you have not put your faith in Christ, and this describes your life, it probably will describe your life. Well, it's going to lead to eternal punishment. I just read to you where two out of these three will lead to eternal punishment. Anger wasn't in one of those verses, but certainly that leads to eternal punishment if you're sinfully angry at everybody. If you're an unbeliever and you're following that, it will lead to hell. So why not trust in Christ? Why not, why not set aside these things, repent, in other words, and turn to Christ for the first time? Look to Him. Don't continue, children, growing up in a life where you're lying. You lie to your parents. You lie to your teachers. You lie on paperwork. You lie in work. You steal. Turn to Christ. Let Him save you before... You have this lifetime of lying and stealing. Turn to him. You can be forgiven. Why wait another day? It makes no sense. Paul is describing what the Christian life is like. You can't have this Christian life unless you are Christian, unless you're saved by God's grace alone. So let's ask him for our help and doing these things that he has commanded us. As believers, we've got to live the Christian life in a Christ-like way. Father, we need your help. We need your help in living these out. You've given us the ability. You've given us the power. But sometimes we want to set aside the truth. We want to pursue our own desires. Let our walk line up with what your word says. Let our walk and our lives completely, 100% line up with Christ. What he's told us to do. We're not like Jonah who wants to go off on our own and run from you. We want to be right there with Christ. Pursuing godliness and sanctification. Help us in that in Christ's name. Amen.